1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. On this episode, we're going to take a deep dive, albeit a brief one, into one very specific aspect of where you can fish if you are fishing a river system. So something that I've always liked doing in Casting Across is really exploring the minutiae of different aspects of fly fishing. I mean, there's articles about nippers. There's articles about the coffee that we drink in the morning before we go fly fishing. There's very specific facets of gear. And uh, I think one of them was small stream warm water bass rods. I mean, that's, that's a pretty narrow category, but that's the stuff that I like trying to figure out. Uh, because I think that once you figure out something small, uh, the principles that you utilize to kind of figure out and ascertain the details of one small aspect of something that you can then take those and extrapolate them out to a number of other topics. So that is to say, if you focus in on saying, all right, I want to find the perfect uh, six weight for a warm water uh, fish on a small creek. And you think, okay, what is the length? What is the action? What uh, is kind of the taper that I'm looking for? And then you can say, okay, those are the things that I need to think about as I look for other warm water rods or other small creep rods or things like that. So I think there's a lot of value in it. Plus, it's fun. I mean, some people don't like thinking through things like that. I like thinking through things like that. And today we're going to talk about fishing in river mouths. Fishing in river mouths. So what is that? So imagine you have a large river and you have a small creek that flows into that large river. Where that small creek enters into that large river is the mouth of that creek, the creek mouth. And you have a really cool opportunity to fish in these areas. I've had some great experiences fishing creek mouths. And so you, when might you encounter a creek mouth? <laughs> you might encounter it as you are fishing downstream in a creek, or you might fish it, you find it as you are either fishing upstream or downstream on a river. And that makes a lot of sense. But I don't know if this is necessarily something that we talk about enough in fly fishing, about how many opportunities you might have in exploring this aspect of a river system, a creek mouth or a river mouth. Now, there's a, a few different things that, that we can think about. Uh, one is fishing a cold water creek as it flows into a warm water river. 
and this is something that is valid all four months out of the year. So why might this be the case? If you have a creek that's cool and it's flowing into a warmer river in the middle of the summer and it's really warm out, then you have an opportunity to fish for warm water fish that are seeking thermal refuge by finding their way into that influx of cold water coming out of that creek. So say you have a spring creek, or even you just have a, a mountain stream, a freestone stream that is coming quickly from a, a higher altitude down to a warmer river, then fish like bass or musky or even carp might choose to be in that area because there's going to be a little bit more diversity of within the ecosystem of, of the, the biomass. Uh, you're going to have a warmer water ecosystem immediately upstream of that influx of cold water, and you might have some species that can only tolerate uh, a cooler temperature, more oxygen, if you will, uh, that usually goes along with that in that area where that cool creek flows into that, that river. So in really, really high temps, and again, you, you have to be careful. You, you don't use this as an opportunity to fish for trapped fish that can go nowhere other than this cold water. That's not super ethical and it's probably going to stress the fish out, but hey, if you're starving and you need to catch fish to eat, then that's probably a good place to find it in that time of year. But for that area, immediately at, at that creek mouth and then downstream for a ways, I mean, and quite, quite a ways, I mean, you know, unless it's a very, very small stream flowing into a very, very large river, that water that's coming out, I mean, consistently, however many hundreds and hundreds of gallons it is every second, uh, is going to have a significant impact. And so that's a chance for you to fish for some fish that are, are probably going to be finding some sort of thermal refuge. Now, the opposite is true. So you have a small creek, not a spring creek in this situation, a small creek that is going to be cold flowing into a warm water river in the wintertime. Now, a warm water river in the wintertime probably isn't going to be warm water. It's going to be cool water, but there's a chance that that river, it's not a chance, it's, it's very likely that that river will have a higher water temperature than that small creek uh, because there's more a higher volume of water moving through it, and especially kind of in those margin times when you're talking like late fall and early spring. The water in that river is going to be uh, warmer than the water in that small creek as well as you're going to probably have more access to, to a greater diversity of biomass, as I mentioned earlier. So you might find fish that would otherwise be up in that small creek. So let's just say it's a trout. You have a rainbow trout that lives in that creek. It's, it's most of its year, but then at these certain times of the year, it drops back um, because fish have the uncanny ability to recognize the differences in things like temperature and dissolved oxygen. But just like we, we would move out of a place if we weren't breathing super well, they have the ability to do that too. And so these trout will drop down into these warm water rivers. So a quick story, this is actually not a, a, a personal story, I've, I've fished in this spot, but I have a couple of friends who have caught some of the largest trout that I have seen in a particular county in Pennsylvania, and they have caught them in the warmest, slowest, crayfish-ridden water that you can imagine. I mean, this is great smallmouth bass water, um, but it is slow, and there are big grass beds, and there are mud flats, and again, the crayfish are huge. The first time uh, I, I went in there, I went with a friend, I thought, like, do you have some sort of lobster that lives in the mountains here? This enormous crayfish. 
But anyway, th this is the least likely trout stream that you can imagine. I mean, that there's you know algae on the on the rocks, just not not pretty. But there's lots of great uh, smallmouth habitat. But these tiny creeks that flow into it that have a, a certain carrying capacity for trout in those margin times, again, late fall, uh, early spring, these trout would drop down into that creek. So they would drop down in late fall and they would hang out in holes uh, in, in this larger river. And then in the early spring, they would move back up to the creek mouths and eventually would make their way back up into the cooler, um, higher dissolved oxygen content water that you find in those creeks. And two people I knew uh, showed me pictures of these enormous trout that they caught in these places that are usually big holes where I would throw poppers for bluegill and for stripers, not stripers, <laughs> for smallmouth in, uh, in the summertime. And these fish just found a nice place to find refuge that had others that probably had lots of bait fish that were also hanging out in these big, deep, uh, cool pools. But that water was warmer uh, and provided more food for them than those smaller creeks. So that's something worth targeting. So this is being recorded in the spring. So you're probably seeing fish that are, what they're doing is they're moving back into that cold water creek. So that's another opportunity for you to target fish. Uh, early spring, uh, late winter, early spring, depending on where you live, those lower stretches of these creeks are great places to target fish that are moving up into them that might have been hanging out in a larger river. Now, this is kind of cool because uh, some of these spots might not be the most ideal places for you to fish uh, other times of the year. They might be shallower, they might be wider, they might be slower, just depending on the topography. I mean, there's really no rule as to what a creek mouth looks like, but uh, usually there's going to be some sort of, of drop-off or depression um, in that in that water. There could even be some siltation because it's getting dumped and, and, and pushed downstream a little bit, but these are places where these fish might stack up. Uh, now, Again, every ecosystem is going to be different. Every water is going to be different. But this is an interesting place to target, especially if maybe you're fishing a stream that has special regulations and the catch and release or the fly fishing only regulations don't start up until maybe something further upstream. So like, a, you know, a bridge or some sort of post uh, quarter mile upstream, a few hundred yards upstream. And so you usually don't target that downstream area. Uh, because the put-and-take folks uh, are down there uh, once the season kicks in in earnest, and depending on where you live, that usually is later than when the fish start moving up. And that's a great time to go fish spots like this because some of those wild fish, these holdover fish that drop down into the larger water body, the larger river, are now making their way up, and these are some great spots for you to capitalize on those fish before somebody comes in and potentially takes it for the frying pan. So that's another thing to think about when you are thinking about these spots is uh, try to grab fish as they are moving back up into their creeks uh, to spend their, their season. Something else that I have been able to take advantage of at the mouths of creeks as they flow into the rivers is larger predatory fish. If you have a stream that doesn't have a huge carrying capacity as far as size goes, so when I talk about that, I'm talking about how many pounds or inches of fish can be in a certain stretch of water. And it's a legitimate way to kind of figure out the, the mass or the, uh, the biomass of a stream, especially when it comes to something like trout uh, or, or other fish that kind of filled that niche in, in a river system. 
but you might have a smaller stream. So I'm thinking of a high gradient mountain stream in Virginia. Average size fish, average size large fish uh, that you'd be excited about is probably about 12 to 14 inches. Um, bigger ones exist in the main stretch of the stream, but most of the fish are smaller than that. So that 14 inch fish is like a real trophy. But when you drop down, you're going to find larger ones. And why is that? Well, that's because the forage base gets to be larger. Uh, and you get more crayfish, you get more leeches. So you, you find that sweet spot where the river is bigger, uh, where it's a little bit warmer, and where you have a little bit more space for some of these other species to elbow their way in. And they're species that might not thrive in those higher gradients. You'll find them every once in a while, but this is more kind of the species that you're going to find in those larger rivers that this creek flows into. And so all the bigger fish, including like wild stuff like eels, uh, you find in this creek, but it's really in that system where it's more defined by where that smaller creek has a junction with that larger river. And you can tell um, that the temperature didn't, didn't raise significantly, but it did get wider and it started, it was more in the valley than it was up on the hillside. And so it, you know, it wasn't the river mouth proper or the creek mouth proper, but it was definitely in that same stretch of water. And so those fish also had that opportunity where they could move a lot more. Now, given a lot of trout, especially once they get larger, are going to be pretty territorial and they're not going to move great distances. There's exceptions to every rule, but that's generally speaking the case. But seasonally, these larger fish were able to move down into the river, like I was talking about before, and then back up into the creek. And they were, were able to take advantage of this greater biomass of food that was available to them in this little slightly altered a little bit more robust ecosystem so it wasn't a place where you're going to necessarily find a lot of spawning trout it wasn't a place where you're going to find a huge population of trout but the trout that you did find down there were larger fish this is at this particular stream um, where you'd find brown trout and where you'd find the larger brook trout would be hanging out down here because as they became increasingly biciferous also where they were chasing after more small fish to eat this was a place where they could find a lot more minnow species than they could further upstream where there's maybe only a couple of, of dace uh, per pool so this is a place where they just naturally uh, would would allow for larger fish I don't think it's necessarily that larger fish move down from upstream but uh, that that is certainly the case as well uh, in certain situations. Okay, so talked a lot of theory about these spaces, why, why they are good to target for fishing different times of the year, different situations and circumstances. Um, now, how do you approach them? So here's my two cents on the matter. I approach creek mouths by starting on the riverside so starting where the water is larger and i fish my way up into them because i want to take advantage of the fact that there might be larger fish of many different species hanging out in the main river taking advantage of of that influx of either cooler or warmer water depending upon the season uh, so i usually like to start on the opposite bank from where that creek is entering. So the stream is entering the river across the river from where I'm standing, but also downstream. Because like I said earlier, you you are getting a pretty good uh, effect of how much water is flowing in, and it's going to have an impact for quite a ways downstream. 
there is a sneaky little spring creek that I've fished before uh, in a mid-Atlantic state that not many folks know about, and it flows into a very large river, very large river. And so we're talking about something that is maybe 10 yards wide flowing into something that is well over 100 yards wide. And But the amount of cold water this thing pumps into this slow large river means that there's a pretty big impact where it, it runs into it. In fact, if you, in the middle of summer, look on uh, Google Maps or you're able to get drone footage, you'll see how the, the, the aquatic vegetation is totally different in this swath that starts out really tight to the mouth of this creek and then fans out uh, for probably a good like 50 yards downstream, but it gets pretty wide as it goes further downstream. And that's the influence of this influence of cold water. So I like to start down at that point and I'll fish that cold water, but I'll also fish that seam where that cold and the warm water meet. Now that's not the easiest thing to identify. The best way I've found to figure it out is by just walking through it once. So you're going to blow all the fish out of it, but you're at least going to have an idea of generally speaking where that seam is. But if the water is moving at a decent clip or it's slow water and that there's an influx of water coming from that creek, you may very well see a seam. Uh, you, you might see where there is a little bit of a line of a different uh, difference in the current. If the water is off color in the main water or in the, the water of the stream that is coming in, you'll also be able to see a difference in the tint of the water. That happened the most recent time I fished the particular creek that I'm talking about here. Uh, it was really, really muddy in the main river because of a lot of rain because of the small creek was a spring creek it hadn't gotten off colored one bit so the seam was incredibly visible it was like water and chocolate milk you know it's like like oil and vinegar next to each other very easy to identify that stream but that's not going to be constant and consistent uh, depending on uh, flows depending upon precipitation depending on the time of year all of those things are going to to change even water temperature will have an, an impact on that so i like to start fishing from the far side of the bank and fishing that seam first because seams are always great. Fish like to hang in them because uh, they're able to to uh, quickly move from one to the other to take advantage of whatever might be there. Um, but then fish into that cold water, especially if there's some sort of structure or some sort of cover, or and then definitely fishing that uh, if, the, if the bank has something going for it, whether it be an undercut or whether it be logs or things like that. But then move my way up and staying kind of on the far side of that creek mouth, now fishing straight up into it um, in case there is something nosing into, into that uh, um, cold or warm influence of water. So making casts up into the creek and allowing them to come down into the mouth and, and flow all the way through and swing through that way. Um, you'll find fish that as long as it's not like a waterfall, are going to be hanging right there. Now, if it is a waterfall, and uh, there's a, another spring creek that flows into a warm water creek that I'm thinking of, and it was a good like four foot drop. Uh, the water was was at such a, a pitch that fish did move up and down through it. But kind of like salmon staging to jump, uh, they, these fish would hang out in the pool directly below this and wait, and then they would kind of you know take their time and, and jump up in. And then from there, you're fishing that creek mouth like you would normally fish a creek, just depending upon reading the water, finding the best approach angle, and making the best best presentation. Um, but at this point, uh, it's not so much the unique nature 
of it being a creek mouth, it is that you might have opportunities at fish that you wouldn't otherwise have in another creek of a similar dimension. So uh, it, it becomes a very normal creek at that point in time, but just know that you might find yourself tangling with uh, a fish that you wouldn't normally expect in that water. So hopefully that makes sense. So starting downstream um, on the opposite bank and working your way up, fishing that seam of where that the creek water hits the river water, it has an impact on it, um, and then uh, moving uh, your way up into that small small creek kind of straight on in. Now, are you going to find situations where there's not a significant difference in the water quality, whether it be the temperature or the dissolved oxygen? Yeah, you're going to find times where it's basically the same water that's flowing together, but you are going to have the benefits of those currents doing some different things. So currents always create uh, opportunities for fish to hang out someplace and maybe have their nose in a buffet of food while not expending as much energy as they would otherwise because where you have two currents coming together, it creates some sort of eddy or some sort of swirl. Um, because of those currents moving, you're going to have a, a significant impact at the, the bottom of the river. And so uh, everything from pebbles to boulders are going to get moved around such that little spots are going to be carved out for fish to, again, hole up and keep their eye on the food coming by or feeling like they have a lot of safety. You're going to have undercuts. Uh, you you may have uh, some, some really good riffles just downstream of that. So it's not necessarily always a temperature or water quality difference. Sometimes it's simply an alteration to the standard course of the topography of the bottom of the creek and the currents in that creek. And little things like that are the kind of things that fish capitalize on for safety and for finding food. So there you go, about uh, 20 minutes talking about fishing river mouths. Uh, I would say go for it. Uh, there's not a bad time of year to do it. There's always going to be fish that are kind of riding the fence that want one side versus the other, um, or who are going to be taking advantage of some of those unique currents and structural uh, stream bottom things that I was just talking about. Uh, I've caught some really big fish and also some surprising fish. You know, this is where you catch, oh, I was, thought I was fishing for trout, and all of a sudden there's a catfish on. Um, or, you know, I, I thought I was fishing for 14 inch trout and now there's a really, really big trout that's decided to, uh, take an interest in my fly because it's, it's just now moving up into the stream. So great opportunities to get out, get some different fish and, uh, really, you know, take advantage of uh, maybe a part of an ecosystem that you haven't taken advantage of, uh, up until this point. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called fish day prepping, not doomsday prepping fish day prepping. So why would you prepare or prep for fishing? Because, as I put on social media, your kitchen table is a much better workstation than the tailgate of your truck. I know it's fun and it's romantic to get all set up in the back of your pickup truck or in the, you know, the hood of your car, but your knots probably aren't going to be as good as if they're being tied in a controlled environment where the lighting is perfect and you're able to rest both of your elbows on your kitchen table. It's not polite for eating, but it's a great way to have good control over your knots. And you're also focused on tying knots, not on getting on the water right away. So I talk about a number of other things besides tying knots that uh, you should be doing at home before you go fishing. And a particular product that I use when I'm doing this is something I'm going to mention at the end of this podcast when I make my weekly recommendation. Wednesday's article is called Back to Fly Fishing School, Back to Fly Fishing School. So the parent brand of fly fishing stalwarts, Sage, Rio, Reddington, and also Flywater Travel is Farbank. 
and Farbank has recently come out with an education and engagement initiative called Fly Fishing School. And the Farbank Fly Fishing School right now is composed primarily of six incredibly high quality but introductory level videos. So this is their first season. They're planning on a second season where they go to kind of the next level uh, to engage with folks who've been fishing for a while. But there's a lot of other stuff on there. There's fly tying videos. There's knot videos. There's also resources for how some of these other the, the, the brands that uh, Farbank has under the umbrella, how they uh, are reaching out and engaging with people. But the these six particular videos might be best described as for beginners, but they're good videos. And as I always said, if you can't explain something yourself, you really don't know it as well as you should. So these are great ways to reorient yourself with basic principles. And to be honest, none of us are above kind of revisiting the basics because there's inevitably something we've missed along the way. So these are great videos, great production value, and so I write a little bit about that and share a little bit more about what I think about the Farbank Fly Fishing School in Back to Fly Fishing School at castingacross.com. This week's recommendation on the podcast comes from Loon Outdoors. Loon Outdoors makes so many great little gadgets and doodads and gizmos and things that I find all over my house and all over my fishing gear, uh, fly tying stuff, you name it. But something that I use when I am prepping my gear before I go out to fish is UV Not Sense. UV Not Sense. So this is a little resin that comes in a tiny little toothpaste tube and you squirt it on your knots, whether it be a knot in your backing, a uh, splice of backing to fly line, uh, fly line to leader, leader to leader, leader to tippet, or whatever else you're tying to, whatever else you're tying to, and a little bit of this stuff. Um, I like to grab a toothpick and smooth it out because it is a little bit, um, there's a little bit of thickness to it, um, and make it nice and smooth, nice gentle transitions, and then zap it with a UV light, and you can get actually a UV kit, which ends up being about the same price as buying a tube of the um, UV Not Sense and uh, and the the light itself, but you also get some weighter repair stuff, which I've talked about before. I, I use this stuff also. But if you don't have a UV light around, you can get it all for like 25 bucks. All two tubes and the light. Uh, I think the tube and the light each run for about 10 bucks a piece. But anyway, you zap it with that, and now you have a super solid reinforced, but also pliable. It's it's not, doesn't turn it rigid. Uh, not. And so for things like bimini twists, uh, things like larger um, loop knots where you're going to be using it kind of at the terminal end of your fly line uh, to, to join like a heavy section of mono loop to uh, prepare to receive loops on the end of your leaders. And if you tie your own tapered leaders, then having that terminal loop that connects to your the mono within your fly line those knots that are a little bit larger that are going to be knots that you might be relying on for a number of, of weeks or months, you hit it with this UV knot sense and now it's really shorted up and it's going to last you a lot longer and you can have a lot of confidence in it. Great stuff, super easy, super fast, and I've not had a knot fail. Maybe I'm not catching a big enough fish, but I'm just going to say it's also because they're good knots. I will put a link for UV Not Sense from Loon at the page of the show notes on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.
fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.